Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 16, the book of Acts, chapter 6, continued. Well, you're ready to get a little heavy duty today. All right, I hope so. As we opened Acts chapter 6 last week, it was prudent that we take a, well, at least take the time to explore some ancient Jewish cultural issues. This is in order for us to better understand not only what was taking place throughout the book of Acts, but also throughout the New Testament. And then more so, how the principles that are revealed ought to be brought forward and into application 2,000 years later for modern day believers, Jewish or Gentile. And I want to forewarn you that our exploration has only just begun because the advantage of the Hebrew Roots approach to Bible teaching is to teach God's Word within the context of the culture of the people who wrote it. What they meant is what the Bible means. And it's how we're to understand it. But it is a Bible-era Jewish culture that's being presented to us. So it's not only foreign to Gentile Christians, but it's also foreign mostly to modern Jews. They don't know. Therefore, I consider it so important for serious Bible students at this point in your learning process that I want to review in some depth because much of what we have discussed isn't the easiest thing in the world to assimilate and to absorb. However, it does make all the difference in extracting the truth and thus discerning correct doctrine from the New Testament. Well, early in chapter 6, we found that this group of believers that Peter was leading in Jerusalem was neither entirely harmonious nor as like-minded as we might have hoped. And so a complaint arose that of the two main factions that formed the Messianic Jews in Jerusalem, one felt it was being discriminated against. Those two factions are given the name of Hellenists or uh, Hellenistone in Greek and Hebrews, Hebrews in Greek. Thus, the first thing to understand is that while the Hellenists and Hellenism, which means Greco-Roman culture and lifestyle, is often portrayed as wrong or negative, in the context of the believers in Jerusalem, it's a relatively neutral term that is simply meant to identify a set of common cultural traits about one of the factions. However, then as now, people from one culture regularly criticize or they see as inferior practices and customs from people of a different culture. Being a Hellenist means that a person's mother tongue is Greek. Only a few of these Greek speakers could also speak Hebrew. Second, it means that they were Jews from the diaspora who were born and raised in, a, in, in foreign nations outside of the Holy Land. Diaspora Jews represented around 95% of all living Jews. 
making the Jews who were born and raised in the Holy Land a distinct minority. But it was a minority that generally felt superior to the foreign Jews. Third, it means that whatever their Jewish religious experiences, the experiences of the Hellenists were formed by the teaching of the rabbis in the synagogues. And finally, it means that the Bible they used was the Septuagint, which was a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible dating from 250 B.C. And this Bible had a few small but significant differences between it and the Hebrew Bible. Now notably, the vast majority of Diaspora Jews never found their way to Jerusalem and to the temple for biblical festivals or to make sacrifices on the altar for atonement for their sins because they lived hundreds, if not a thousand or more miles away and such a trip was so expensive and time-consuming as to be a practical impossibility for all but the wealthiest or the most zealous Yet they didn't usually feel that they were living in a state of sin or, or ritual impurity for not being able to sacrifice at the temple altar. You see, the synagogue had come up with customs and traditions that purported to give them atonement by other means. Now the other faction of believers in Jerusalem were called Hebrews. This was mainly because their native language was Hebrew. They were born and they were raised in the Holy Land and even though they too revolved their daily religious lives around the synagogue and teachings of the rabbis, they did have regular connection with the temple because they were near enough to attend all of the required festivals. They could come to make altar sacrifices for atonement as needed and so on. So to be clear, the term Hebrews in this context doesn't mean that this is a faction of believers that was racial and ethnic Hebrews and then the Hellenist faction wasn't. It more spoke to just language, place of birth, a general lifestyle, philosophy, not a lack of Hebrew genealogy. Now next we spoke about the subject that was at the center of this dispute between the Hellenist and Hebrew believers, which was the distribution of food to the widows. Now, I'm not going to go over all the information we discussed last week about widows in that era. Just recall that supporting widows who had little to no other means of support was charity. And that fell mainly to the members of whatever synagogue she belonged to. Peter and the 11 other disciples who formed the leadership of the Jerusalem believers all belonged to the Hebrew faction. See, they were born in the Holy Land, in Galilee. So, they spoke Hebrew. And they were comfortable going to the temple for ceremony, for sacrifice. So, how much prejudice the Hellenist widows were suffering from that was real and intended or it was mostly perception from people who felt more like outsiders that were dealing with language and cultural barriers is hard to tell. 
Nonetheless, the twelve disciples thought the problem valid enough that they had the congregation select seven men specifically to supervise uh, support for all these widows. Now due to the Greek names of the seven, it seems all but certain that they all must have been from the complaining Hellenist faction. This group even included one who was a Gentile by birth, but who had fully converted to Judaism. And another who was an exceptionally spirit-filled man who would soon become the first martyr for his faith in Yeshua. That was Stephen. Next we discussed that while the three best known and socially acceptable religious uh, political parties of the Jews were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. In fact, there was a fourth that most Jews of that day refused to recognize as being legitimately Jewish at all, the Samaritans. As their name implies, they occupied an area called Samaria, which the Jews of that day no longer considered as part of the Holy Land, so despised were the Samaritans. The Samaritans were seen as traitors to Judaism, to the synagogue, to the temple, for a whole host of reasons. First was because the Samaritans were an ethnic mixture of tiny remnants of the ten northern Israelite tribes who had somehow managed to avoid deportation at the hands of the Assyrians some 700 years earlier and along the way had it interbred with Gentiles. Some were from the tribe of Judah, Jews, and had also gone to Samaria and in many cases they too married foreigners and they had children. But second, from a religious perspective, the Samaritans committed the unpardonable act of erecting their own temple in Samaria at Mount Gerizim and creating their own separate priesthood. They went so far as to make modifications to the Torah of Moses to reflect their beliefs. This is called the Samaritan Pentateuch. And they did not accept any writings of scripture other than their modified Torah. That is, they didn't accept as scripture any of Israel's prophets. Thus they were judged by the Holy Land Jews as more unclean and untouchable than if they'd been Gentiles and were worshipping some kind of the some of the standard pagan gods. For the Holy Land Jews, the Samaritans perverted and marked everything that was holy to them, and they hated them for it. So the Samaritans had no ties whatsoever with the two standard Jewish religious institutions of that day the synagogue and the temple well then we got into a substantial discussion about the synagogue as an institution that is completely separate and apart from the temple oh how important this is this is no trivial matter it is perhaps one of the larger keys that if it's understood can unlock the mysteries of the meaning of many New Testament passages and none more so than the difficult words of Paul. I'm going to briefly point out the highlights of that topic. 
Now, first of all, we find no mention of the synagogue in the Old Testament. That's because the synagogue was a purely man-made institution eventually created by the exiled Jews in response to their predicament of having been hauled off to Babylon by the Babylonians in the early 6th century BC. The Jerusalem temple was destroyed, the priesthood was abandoned, and the Jews found themselves captives living in a Gentile world among pagan, pagan gods. They could not ritually cleanse themselves. They could not eat kosher food. They could not sacrifice to atone for their sins. And none of the required Levitical rituals of the Torah for Shabbat or for the festivals could be accomplished. Thus at first, mainly for the purpose of separating themselves from the pagan Babylonians, they began meeting together. And soon they acquired buildings, and then they appointed leaders and teachers, and in a few decades, they established a complex system of religious authority and teachings and then new traditions that addressed many of their conundrums. Now, while much of this solved practical problems that the Jews faced, none of this was God-ordained. The synagogue would not be led by priests, but rather mostly by self-appointed or elected lay people. But the synagogue served a useful purpose in Jewish life and social and religious, mainly by keeping this far-flung Jewish communities connected in a common identity. They did not assimilate into the Gentile world and disappear as what seems to have happened to their Israelite brethren, the ten so-called lost tribes. The synagogue and Judaism were born together out of necessity. And in time, they became the center and pulse of Jewish life. Now as we get into the era of Christ and the New Testament... Even though the temple and the priesthood had been restored, operating for centuries, the synagogue continued to flourish as well. The party of the Pharisees had become the leaders of the synagogue. Religious schools had been set up. The most famous was that of Gamaliel. These schools had no connection to the priesthood or to the temple. Rather, they were the source of rabbis for the many and growing number of synagogues. And what is so critical for us to grasp is that the teaching of the synagogue centered on oral Torah, also known as tradition, or as Jesus once called it, traditions of the elders. This stood in direct opposition to the temple and to the priesthood that was run by the party of the Sadducees. They did not accept as valid the tradition of the elders as taught in the synagogue. Rather, they accepted only the written and original Torah of Moses and the prophets as their scriptural authority. Well, now let's discuss this concept of oral Torah, tradition before we get back into Acts chapter 6 so we can all be on the same page. Oral Torah or tradition are interpretations of the Torah law, that is the law of Moses. It is somewhat like doctrine is to Christianity. I hope you pay attention to this please. It is somewhat like doctrine is to Christianity. 
It's only that different terms are used. In Judaism, they use the term traditions. In Christianity, the parallel term is doctrines. That is, within Christianity, every denomination has decided to interpret the Bible in its own way. And it comes to some conclusions about what scripture passages mean. Then when these interpretations are adopted by church authorities, they're called doctrines. For example, Southern Baptists have the doctrine of eternal security. This says that once you are saved, there is no way and no circumstances under which you can lose your salvation. This is their interpretation of scriptures in that regard. Catholics have the doctrine of transubstantiation, whereby when one takes communion, the wine literally becomes blood. Not symbolically, but it actually supernaturally changes form, just as the bread literally becomes flesh. This is their interpretation of the scriptures in that regard. Both the Southern Baptists and the Catholics, however, would not really agree that these are mere interpretations. Rather, to their minds, this is what Scripture plainly teaches. So, from their perspective, they are teaching the Bible when they teach their doctrines. You catch that? They're considered one and the same. There is nearly no distinction made between doctrine and scripture except perhaps at an academic level. It's the same thing with Judaism. We can rightly speak of oral Torah as interpretations of scripture. But essentially, to the minds of rabbis and their Jewish congregations, the oral Torah is merely the discovery of the true inherent meaning of the written Torah. Thus there is no difference between the written Torah of Moses and the oral Torah of the rabbis. That's how they think about it. Saul Katz, in 1923, published a book in Germany. And he tried to help explain to mystified Gentile Christians about the Jewish mindset of oral Torah also known as traditions of the elders. And he said this, he said, every interpretation of the Torah given by a universally recognized Jewish authority is regarded as divine and as given on Mount Sinai in the sense that it is taken as the original divinely willed interpretation of the scriptural text. For the omniscient and all-wise God included in his revealed Torah every shade of meaning, a meaning which divinely inspired interpretation thereafter discovered. That's how Jews think about it. So from the Jewish viewpoint, every interpretation given by recognized Jewish rabbis in the Talmud was something Moses actually had received from God at Mount Sinai long ago and over time inspired sages and rabbis discovered these truths. It was not received in the sense that these interpretations were also written down by Moses but rather the interpretations were supernaturally and organically contained within the just 
kind of hidden within the letters of the Torah. In the same way that the fruit of a tree is contained in kind of a hidden form within a seed from which that tree came. So if the written Torah of Moses is the tree, then the oral Torah is the fruit of that same tree. And since both of them came from the same seed, then they are essentially of identical divine substance. That's the logic. And again, while that concept might sound very strange to Gentiles, I assure you it's only because of the terms that are used in Judaism. If I gave to you as an illustration that the Bible is the tree and the doctrines of the Christian church are the fruit of that tree, then because they both come from the same seed, the seed is God, then they're organically inseparable and therefore essentially of the same divine substance. What I just told you is generally the church's position about church doctrines, even if you weren't aware of it. That is, there is no discernible difference between the Bible and church doctrine. If the church teaches their doctrine, they feel they're teaching you the Bible. If the synagogue teaches their traditions, they feel they're teaching you the Torah. Now, while I don't agree with that stance of either the church or the synagogue, some would fight to their last breath to defend it. What I just told you usually isn't ever expressed to the congregation within Christianity. Rather, it is taken as a given that doesn't need any expression. So we can listen to months and years of church sermons that might not include much more than a few words taken from a handful of Bible verses, but at the same time pastors insist that what they're doing is teaching you the Bible. The same goes with Judaism. The synagogue leaders will teach what Rabbi so-and-so said from the Talmud and expound on it for hours while perhaps including no more than a few verses from the written biblical Torah. But at the end of the day, they will insist that what they're doing is teaching the written biblical Torah. This perspective is only rarely challenged because it represents at least a couple of thousand years of custom. I hope you're following this. This brings me then to my last point before we get back into chapter 6 of Acts. The result of this reality is the meaning of terms gets blurred. As regards Judaism, the term Torah can mean what it originally meant, the written Torah of Moses as we find it in the Bible, or Torah can mean all Torah, because Judaism sees that as essentially the same as the written Torah. Thus, the term law can mean one of the laws of Moses as written and found in the Torah of the Bible or it can mean a tradition or a ruling handed down by a rabbi as his interpretation of the Torah of Moses. And in the New Testament, we run across this challenge of regularly trying to discern what a Bible character means by the terms he or she uses and especially as it concerns the term law.
Now the reason I've taken so much of your time with this over the last couple of weeks is this. In the New Testament, all of the New Testament writers, all of the New Testament writers were products of the synagogue system to one level or another. None were priests so far as we know. So they certainly weren't products of the temple system as run by the Sadducees. So what does this tell us about their vocabulary and the meaning of the terms that they used? It means that they were schooled in tradition, in oral Torah, by their synagogue leaders. And so their vocabulary reflected that important fact. Certainly, Scripture was read and known. Scripture was believed in. It was trusted. Some knew the Torah and the prophets better than others who knew mostly tradition. But, at the same time, the oral Torah that interpreted those Scriptures was seen as every bit as divine and authoritative and trustworthy as the original Scriptures themselves. Now before we move on, I want to give you as an example of the effect of these Jewish cultural realities by speaking about the Sermon on the Mount, whereby Yeshua was seen, and we read it in our New Testaments, as a what? A great rabbi, right? And a rabbi is by definition a product of what? The temple? Oh no! He's a product of the synagogue. There's no rabbis in the temple. So he did not quote scripture per se. Rather, Yeshua spoke to his listeners in the same way of all, as all rabbis of his era did. He referred to what earlier interpreters of Scripture said. Remember how Yeshua said, Now, you've heard that your father said, right? And how he says it? And then he'd go on to say, But now I tell you. And then he would follow by giving his own interpretation of Scripture. This procedure was fully accepted. It was expected by all those Jews sitting there on the hillside listening to him because they understood the process of how oral Torah was created. No doubt, not everybody accepted this rabbi's teachings. Thus, to the minds of those hearing Jesus, he was merely creating new tradition in the customary way even if it was more profound than anything they'd ever heard before because they were hearing it from God. Now we aren't done with learning about the synagogue and its deeply rooted role in Jewish life and most importantly for us in the creation of the New Testament. But for the time being we're going to pull off of this fascinating subject get back into Acts chapter 6. So, bet you were wondering when that was going to happen. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. We're going to start reading at verse 8. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1367. Follow along with me, please. Acts chapter 6, starting at verse 8. Now Stephen, full of grace and power, performed great miracles and signs among the people, but 
opposition arose from members of the synagogue of the freed slaves, as it was called, composed of Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and people from Cilicia and the province of Asia. They argued with Stephen, but they couldn't stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by which he spoke. So, they secretly persuaded some men to allege, we heard him speak blasphemously against Moses and against God. And they stir up the people, as well as the elders and the Torah teachers. So they came and arrested him and led him before the Sanhedrin. There they set up false witnesses who said, This man never stopped speaking about this holy place and against the Torah. For we have heard him say that Yeshua from Nazareth is going to destroy this place and he's going to change the customs that Moses handed down to us. Everyone sitting in the Sanhedrin stared at Stephen and saw his face look like that, looked like the face of an angel. Here we meet this exceptional follower of Christ, Stephen. And since he was so full of grace and of Holy Spirit power, he, God did great miracles through him. Great miracles. And now for the first time, we see the synagogue come against Stephen and the, the believers in Jerusalem. And since their interpretations of the Torah couldn't stand up against Stephen's, they took the bold action of accusing him of blasphemy. Specifically, they said he blasphemed against Moses and against God. Now, to blaspheme Moses didn't mean to go against Moses the person. Rather, it means to go against what God gave to Moses. Thus, the sense is to go against the Torah given at Mount Sinai to Moses. Now, rabbis were infamous for hurling the accusation at one another that they are blaspheming Moses or they're destroying the Torah when they disagree on important interpretations. So the charge of blaspheming Moses wasn't as serious or unusual as it might sound in our New Testament. But what does the far more serious charge of blaspheming God mean? I mean, how does one do that? Obviously, there was no question among anyone that Stephen was a Jew who worshipped the God of Israel, so he certainly didn't renounce God. In this era, the accusation of blaspheming God was nearly exclusively about only one thing, pronouncing God's formal name out loud, or even writing it down. This was a synagogue tradition. They began in the late 300s BC. There is no evidence that the temple shared that same belief. After all, the Sadducees who ran the temple were purists. And they only accepted the original written Torah of Moses and the several prophets as their authority. And the Old Testament is not only not against pronouncing God's name, it uses God's name 6,000 times. And almost every Hebrew Bible character of any importance speaks God's formal name as we find it in the Scriptures. The Hebrews were encouraged in the Old Testament to call on God's name. In fact, many Hebrew names include God's formal name, although just in abbreviated fashion. 
Now, interestingly, this prohibition against using God's formal name stemmed from a synagogue ruling that a child should never call his father by his given name as it was deemed disrespectful. And from that grew the notion that if it was so disrespectful to call one's human father by his given formal name, how much more so then it would be to call our Heavenly Father by His formal name. Thus began the oral tradition that it was wrong to pronounce God's formal name and eventually it was considered so serious as to be blasphemy. Now I want to stress this yet again. The Old Testament not only does not prohibit the use of God's name, it says God's people should call on His holy name. And further, the only admonition and ruling against using God's name is found in the rabbinical rulings, such as the Mishnah and the, and the Talmud. And what... Follow me again, please. What are the Mishnah and the Talmud? Oral Torah. Tradition. And who wrote the Mishnah and the Talmud? The rabbis. And what did the rabbis represent? The synagogue. See the chain? I want to be clear. I'm not in any way demeaning the synagogue or the rabbis. I'm saying that when doctrines and traditions of men begin to take over, biblical truth inevitably takes a backseat. Or as Christ once famously said in Matthew 15, 1-9, Then some Parshim Pharisees and Torah teachers from Jerusalem came to Yeshua and they asked him, Why is it that your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't do Nathaliyat Yaim, hand washing, ritual hand washing, before they eat. And he answered, Indeed, why do you break the commandment of God by your traditions? Ooh. For God said, honor your father and your mother. And anyone who curses his father and mother must be put to death. But you say, if anyone says to his father and mother, I've promised to give to God what I might have used to help you, then he's rid of his duty to honor his father and mother. Thus by your traditions, you make null and void the word of God. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. Oh, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far away from me. Their worship of me is useless because they teach man-made rules as if they were doctrines. Now listen, in no way was Christ putting down all traditions and customs and Jewish doctrines. He was saying that while there's a place for them in our faith, they must be subservient to the Holy Scriptures. tradition is not equal to the written Torah of Moses. And let me tell you something else. Church doctrines are not equal to the Bible. And this is because traditions and customs and doctrines are all man-made. Therefore, they're subject to opinion and to error. While the Holy Scriptures are God-made and they are infallible. Now notice that we're expressly told in verse 13 of Acts 6 that those who made these accusations against Stephen were what? False witnesses. 
false witnesses do? They lie. They fabricate. So we don't have to speculate about this. The charges against Stephen of constantly speaking against the temple and against the Torah are what? False charges. And what exactly are the charges that amount to blasphemy in their eyes? The charges are that Stephen says that Yeshua is going to destroy the temple and that he has changed the customs that Moses handed down to the Jews. Note, it was not the laws of the Torah that they accused Stephen's master of changing, but of what? The customs. That is, they're speaking about one thing only. Oral Torah. Traditions. But recall, to the Jewish mind, tradition and the actual written Torah are the same thing. And I indeed demonstrated to you that the Sermon on the Mount was given to Jews in a typical rabbinical fashion because Yeshua first said what the earlier interpretations of the law were, earlier traditions, but now what he says is the proper interpretation. Indeed, Stephen was challenging the currently accepted oral Torah rulings and customs. But he, like Yeshua, was in no way challenging the Torah of Moses. Do not think, what did he say? That I've come to abolish the Torah or the prophets. As for the charge that Yeshua was going to destroy the temple... Now we could go deeply into, into that subject as many commentators have. But I only have one thing I want to say about this. This was a silly, phony charge designed only to elicit murderous emotions. I mean, from their viewpoint, think about who was, who's talking here. From their viewpoint, how could Yeshua destroy the temple? He was dead. Gone. My gosh, they were, he was crucified right in front of them. The accuser certainly didn't believe that Yeshua was alive and resurrected and living in heaven with God. No. In the end, this was about only one thing. Stephen was speaking against the traditional Torah interpretations as taught in the synagogues. Thus we are told that it was Jews from the synagogue of the freedmen who were making all these charges. Well, the final verse of Acts chapter 6 has Stephen standing now before the Sanhedrin. Thus, this street mob did not defy or overwhelm the Sanhedrin in order to lynch Stephen. Whatever happened to Stephen would be decided or at least condoned by the Supreme Court of the Jews. And whether they were right or wrong in what they decided, they were the legitimate civil government of the Jews. I love the final words of this chapter. As it says that Stephen's face looked like the face of an angel. And angels are regularly depicted as emitting bright light. So from the Jewish perspective, and according to the now voluminous synagogue traditions concerning angels and demons, the idea is that Stephen's face was bright and shining in a supernatural way. Luke's idea in reporting this particular phenomenon 
was to compare the glow of Stephen's face with the same Moses that Stephen is on trial for supposedly speaking against. Because in Exodus 34, verses 29 and 30, we read this. When Moshe came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, he didn't realize that the skin of his face was sending out rays of light as a result of his talking with Adonai. When Aaron and the people of Israel saw Moses, the skin of his face was shining and they were afraid to approach him. Next week, we're going to begin Acts chapter 7 and the trial and martyrdom of Stephen. And we're going to discuss some fascinating things about Stephen that's going to surprise you.